As we come to you, we pray that our eyes, our hearts, our minds, everything about us will be attuned to what you're doing in this place, right here, right now. Speak now, God. Through Christ, amen. About to bring up a touchy subject. In an article, Why Do I Always Lose Things? Brian Fan wrote about the truth that most of us regularly lose something. Might be your keys. Not sure where you left them. Uh, your wallet. Uh, ladies, sometimes some of you have lost purses. And it was distressful. Uh, phones. Nowadays, that's terrifying to lose your phone. Uh, and some of us are more prone to misplacing things than others. I, I found out yesterday that I lost a check, a checkbook in Texas when I went home from my dad's funeral. Uh, Randy called me and said, hey, uh, we found your checkbook. And I said, what? Because I did not bring a checkbook with me, but there it was. And it gave my address, East Stevens Circle. Folks, I haven't lived at East Stevens for five years. It was an old checkbook that I had apparently lost in a piece of luggage, and somehow it fell out of a pocket, and my brother now had it. At least I didn't know it was lost, and I wasn't fretting over that. One study concluded, and I hope this study is so wrong, I really do, uh, one study concluded the average person misplaces nine things a day, and we might spend up to 15 minutes looking. Why does it happen? Why do we lose? Why do we forget? Well, he points out it's because we're not activating part of our brain. The hippocampus is where uh, this kind of, it, it kind of takes a snapshot of what's happening and puts it in the right place in the brain and the neurons are firing so we can remember. The real problem is we're not paying attention. We're not watching what's happening. We're not looking at what's happening. And so we don't think. Unless you've developed a habit, my keys always go here. Have fun. We have to pay attention. And right now, we are going to come to one of the most important gifts Christ has ever given us. The ordinance of the Lord's Supper. It is incredible. Incredibly important for us to understand we lose peace, we lose hope, we lose a sense of belonging because somewhere along the line we let other things crowd into our lives and we lose focus of what is truly important. So today we're going to take a look at the Lord's Supper and we're going to be answering a question, are we ready to come to the table? I'm sure many of you grew up, because uh, I know most of you are in that age right, where you had family meals at the table. Mom would often call out, it's time to get ready for supper, and we'd run in, and if I didn't meet the process of what it meant to be ready, I had to go get ready. So we're going to look at a passage of Scripture. It is one of two accounts in the book of Corinthians that mentions the Lord's Supper. The other chapter, other passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be looking, and I will confess, 
This is a lengthy passage today, verses 17 through 34, but it is very crucial. Uh, We are going to look at the context of what Paul had to say today. So maybe we can understand part of what that means, that question, are you ready? So I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm asking you to truly pay attention. Be mindful of what Paul wrote as we hear the word of the Lord. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I want to just stop real quickly there for one little note. This verse has bugged people. And the best explanation I've come up with is Paul is probably mocking some of the Corinthians because they are the ones who are probably saying, well, there have to be differences so we'll know who's best. Corinth was all about who's best. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill. Some of you have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Okay, we need to understand why Paul wrote this book, why he wrote this passage. And he was writing it to correct abuses and the observance of the Lord's Supper, abuses that were caused by the way people were treating one another. So when we come together, Natalie was talking with the kids earlier, when we come together, we need to be sure that we are ready, that we are going to partake of this in a worthy manner. Well, how do you know if you're doing it in a worthy manner? Well, hopefully we're going to do something good today. We're going to learn, hopefully, 
from somebody else's mistakes. Because that's what this passage is about. We're going to take a look at the mistakes that Corinth made, which caused Paul to say, I don't have a good word to say about this. And you're not taking the Lord's Supper anyway. So let's take a look at some mistakes. Mistakes that were garnished around this thing called the Lord's Supper. And the very first, we must avoid the mistake of forgetting who we are. It's crucially important, folks. The church at Corinth is not remembering. The interesting thing is, the word that is most often translated church in our New Testament is the word ecclesia, and its basic meaning is an assembly, a group of people who've gathered together. And he says, when you are coming together, it is not as the church. He says, actually, when you're doing this, you're making things far worse than they should be. Why? Because they were supposed to come together to act as the body of Christ, to act as children of the living God, a fellowship of believers united through Jesus Christ. But when you look at what was happening, there was no real fellowship at that table. And that's the problem. When they are gathered as a church, there are divisions. Now, someone has pointed out, Paul brings up divisions here. In the very first chapter, he says, one of the reasons he wrote this book, I got a letter from the household of Chloe talking about all of the divisions that are in this church. And folks, almost every chapter has something to do with some kind of division within the church. And they are fighting about everything. Who's the best preacher? Uh, who gets the most at, at the love feast, who's got the best gift, and here we come to the Lord's Supper. Essentially, they had come together as a church, but they weren't building each other up. They weren't strengthening each other. They had forgotten that they were brothers and sisters in the Lord, and everyone seemed to be looking out for themselves. What does that have to do with you and me? Well, whenever uni wherever unity is lost in the body, our worship of the Lord suffers. Sheldon Sorge pointed out it's tragic. Here at the table of the Lord, when Christians gather throughout this world, gather together to take up the Lord's Supper, the most tangible moment of having communion both with Christ and each other possible within the church, it's done frequently in the arena of division. And it didn't stop with Corinth. It has continued throughout the ages. Divisions among whole denominations, among local churches. He quotes a verse that is not in our copy of the church is one foundation by Samuel Stone. And the, the church, the, the hymn is very honest because at one point it recognizes that the church, by schisms torn asunder, by heresies distressed. Division and false. That may sound harsh, but the reality is the body of Christ is often divided. And uh, it, we, we see other churches... As our competition, how dare they build another Baptist church 
a mile from me. We see denominations, whole denominations, either as inferior or heretical, if they don't agree with everything we say. And I know we want to believe it's not like this at Bay Vista. I know that, and I do know this is a loving congregation, but folks, we've got to be honest. Everybody in this room is susceptible to the temptation to let our wants define what is important. That includes your pastor. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll serve, but am I going to get recognition for doing so? I'll sing if she picks out songs I like. And can't Brother Danny preach about something happy every once in a while? Habakkuk awakening, all this. And Danny, cheer us up. Well, the thing I'm trying to point out, folks, we, you and I, need to be very careful here. We need to be careful that we do not breed division within the body. This table, this service is supposed to remind us that we are part of the family of God. We need to walk and we need to work together. And this table calls us to reach out in forgiveness if there is a break to try and build a bridge of reconciliation. If we are the body of Christ. We represent Him here on earth. And we should love as He loves. So if I forget, when I come to this table, the person down the pew from me, or across the aisle from me, or way in a far different corner of the church, when I forget them, and who they are, and who they are to be to me, it's not the Lord's Supper. Well, there's more to that. I said, we need to remember that we are brothers and sisters. We must also avoid the mistake of disregarding others in the body of Christ. It's not enough to say, oh, I love everybody. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to say, I love everybody? Because that's kind of nebulous, isn't it? I love everybody. Well, this is calling for something more specific. And, and Kenneth Chapin points out something. When we, when we look at this truth, Paul went in, in painful detail about how the division was being manifested at Corinth. And Chafin shows out why it's kind of hard sometimes for us to get this. When you look at the first century church, they developed a beautiful practice. They called it the love feast, the agape feast. And people would gather together, they would bring whatever they had, come together at, at one location, they would all share their food and have a wonderful meal. Now folks, we get that. If you've been Baptist longer than six months, you know about fellowship meals. You know about potluck suppers. We understand that. But what we typically don't do at our potluck suppers is what they would do at the love feast. Some point in the service, in the meal, they would observe the Lord's Supper. And so every time they had a meal together, it became an act of worship. And it was a way of creating, developing Christian fellowship in the, in the church. In connection with the meal, in connection with the Lord's Supper, it was meant to bring unity. But, 
when you look at Corinth, what happens? People start eating the meal before everyone's gathered. People start eating the meal and eating everything up. And people who didn't have anything to bring are probably in the corner somewhere watching a bunch of people pig out because they eat everything. And then it got so crazy during the meal, people were so excited, they were getting drunk. That's one advantage of using grape juice in a Baptist church. Well, even if it were real world wine, that much isn't going to get you drunk. But the point is, they were not paying attention. It seems to have been divided on a social level. The haves enjoyed their meal. The have-nots were left alone. And Paul said, you're despising the body. What the Corinthian church was doing was a mockery. It didn't matter if you said the right words. And I know folks who think you have got to say the exact right words. It doesn't matter if you do the right actions. For Paul, he said, the way you're doing it is making it a lie. So the church at Corinth made a joke out of Christian love and represented the epitome of self-indulgence. There were members in the church who simply looked down on those and did not create fellowship. Well, for us, the church will do well to remember that God shows no partiality. There are no favorites. Jay used to joke uh, that God has no partiality, but I'm his favorite. Well, folks, there are no favorites. And as in Paul's day, there can be class distinctions within a church, and we do have that here. But we need to remember, when Jesus was here on earth, what did he do? He ate with poor people, right? He fed 5,000 plus, because the women and children weren't counted. But he also ate with rich people, some who were religious, the Pharisees. They believed they were God's heroes, and some were just outright misfits, tax collectors and such. What we need to remember by making this statement, by looking at what they've done, we need to remember that at the foot of the cross, everyone is equal. No one deserves. No one deserves the salvation we have. None of us deserves to be treated differently because of our circumstances. We're family, and specifically the family of God. And we need to show the world what it means to be such a family instead of the world looking at us and saying, you know what, they don't love each other. Why should I think they love me? We need to show them what a loving, compatent body of Christ can be and how that plays out in terms of application. We need to be committed to looking out for each other. We need to be paying attention so that when we see someone who is doing without them, we have the needs to meet that. Do you remember what James said? 
If all you do said, I'm praying for you, that's nothing. Your works show your faith. We need to be looking out when there are needs that we're aware of. We need to see what we can do to help meet those needs. We need to make sure that anyone, everyone in the body is made to feel home when they are together. I started off in ministry at a time frame where if a man wasn't wearing a coat and tie in church, he was sinning. And if ladies weren't dressed in nice dresses, they were wrong. That's the time frame I began my ministry. And things have relaxed quite a bit. Uh, I'm, I'm in my, my jacket today, but even I don't have a tie on. If you walk into this church building in shorts and t-shirt, and you've come to serve Christ, you're welcome. If you come in a tuxedo, you're going to get a lot of stares. If you drove up in a Rolls Royce, people will notice. But you will be treated the same as others. We are the family of God and we need to remember that. And then we get to the institution itself. We must avoid the mistake of forgetting what Christ's sacrifice teaches us about ourselves. What do we learn at this table that Corinth wasn't learning? How do we understand us? Well, the Apostle Paul brought up the origin of the ordinance in this context of division. That's why I've read the whole passage. This is the first time in 40 years of ministry I've read and uh, am expounding on all of the verses. Normally we would get to, when he was betrayed, he took bread. But Paul wrote this because he's wanting these people, you need to remember what this is all about. And so he, first of all, he points to Christ. And he says, I received this from the Lord. Uh, and he, he was able to say when Christ was betrayed, on the night he was arrested, he talked about the bread. He took the, the Passover meal and changed its meaning. It's still going to be a, a meal of remembrance, but now something different. He said, this bread is going to be given for you, and this bread is my body, given for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This was what it was about. The new memory. They were being reminded, Christ died, giving himself as a sacrifice for you. And every time we take this cup, we are reminded of that truth. Every time they observe the Lord's Supper, Paul said, you will then proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. But remember what he told them, you're not doing the Lord's Supper. So they're not proclaiming the Lord's death. It's a mockery. So what does that mean, proclaim the Lord's death? Now, it can mean speaking. And we do talk about the Lord's Supper. Ever since I've been with you, for 40 plus years, every time I do the Lord's Supper, the whole service is built around the supper. 
and we speak about it and we sing about it and all that. It could be talking about this, but the idea of proclamation also carries with it the idea of action. And I think that's the focus here. Paul didn't care if the right words were spoken. If things were done a little bit out, that wasn't the point. He's saying the way you are doing it denies the Christ who did what? Gave himself. So folks, the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are supposed to be giving and taking this supper, binding ourselves to one another in love, seeing each other as a child of God, deserving our love and our devotion and our fellowship, when we do that, that action is showing the reason we do this is because Christ did that. David Garland points out, eating and drinking are mentioned five times just in verses 26 through 29. I think that might be important. You might be trying to point out something here. Paul wanted to, to emphasize not just the verbal repetition of the story, but the fact that Jesus gave himself. I already know that I need grace. I know that. But I need to recognize the other. And so, a true celebration of the Lord's Supper involves a remembrance of all Christ has done for him. We celebrate because he gave himself for us. Each one of us celebrate because we know he gave himself for me. Folks, he lived a perfect life without any sin. He gave his perfect life on the cross so that we could know forgiveness, that we would be right with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 declares, God made him who knew no sin, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Grace is free, but it is not cheap. And we needed a salvation we could not provide for ourselves, so Christ provided it for us. And we celebrate the truth of this table. Not only thank you, Jesus, that you saved me, but thank you that you showed me my pattern of life and what it should be. The constant giving of myself. Malcolm Duncan wrote a book, Risk Takers, and he talks about the Parabolani, uh, a group of people. They show up about AD 252 during a time of plague. How's that appropriate in a COVID world? In Carthage, in AD 252, this movement began. It grew up because of a plague. Plague had been raging across the, the known world. Thousands upon thousands were dying. It finally came to Carthage and hundreds of people were dying, and the city fathers acted quickly. They burned the bodies of plague victims, and if you had come in contact with a plague person, you'd be run out of the city. They were trying to stop it 
nip it, don't let it get bad here. But also drew the, the attention of one man by the name of Cyprian. He was the bishop of Carthage at the time, and he acted swiftly. The city says, get rid of them. Listen what Cyprian called the church to do. That word parabolani comes from uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 30, where Paul is describing Epaphroditus, uh, and he said he was willing to whisk, risk his life for the service of the Lord. And Cyprian called the church together, invited them uh, to go out and live among the sick and dying. He challenged them to give up comfort and security of their own well-being and step into the world of the rejected and forgotten. And he brought Epaphroditus up. This man that Paul talked about, willing to risk his life, we need to be willing to risk our lives. The movement lasted a couple of hundred years, and they served the broken, the poor, the forgotten, and the vulnerable. They too gave up the security of what they knew and embarked. So when we say we need to commit to all this meal means, we need to remember, Paul started this chapter by saying, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And the rest of the book, the rest of this chapter, he's saying this is what the body of Christ should do, following Christ. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we find out what we're supposed to do. Paul said, you need to be of one mind. You need to have one spirit in your church. And then he describes that. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of, of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Folks, Paul over and over and over again calls the church, the body of Christ, to be like the Savior. So we're called to walk in humility. We're to walk in lives of service, finding some way to touch and meet need as we can. And if we're not willing to do that, if we're not willing to put each other first and the needs of the body above our wants, we could do this ritual every Sunday from now till kingdom comes, and all it would be would be a ritual. It would not be the Lord's Supper. Our lives. The cross teaches us what our lives should be. Service. Sacrifice. Love. And then the final mistake. The one everybody worries about when we come to this passage. We must avoid the mistake of an unexamined life. Corinth wouldn't even take time to look at themselves. They wouldn't even look at what they were doing. They were so caught up in what they wanted, 
it wasn't part of their plan. So what does Paul do? He gave a warning to those who would observe the supper. If you're going to observe the supper, you need to do this. Now, first of all, I said, you need to recognize what you're doing, you're not recognizing the body. You need to look and realize you're not recognizing the body. Now, what did that mean? Well, some people think it meant, well, they're getting drunk and they're eating up and they're, you know, they're gorging themselves while they're hungry, so they're treating this meal like any other kind of public meal that they would go to in Corinth. That's possible, but I don't think that's what he meant. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, that passage that alludes to the Lord's Supper, he said, it is not the cup of thanksgiving which we, for which we give thanks and participation in the blood of Christ, and it's not the bread that we break participation in the body of Christ, because there is one loaf. We who are many are one loaf for all. We all partake of one loaf. Paul doesn't talk, interpret the wine, but he interprets the, the bread. That bread shows us we are one. I believe when Paul says, you're not recognizing the body, he wasn't talking about bread. It wasn't shorthand for bread and cup. Folks, we are the body of Christ. And they weren't recognizing each other. They were bringing shame, not to the bread, but to each of us. The whole point of these verses, 17 through 34, is to correct the abuse that was happening in the church, visible every time they took what they called the Lord's Supper. Because every time they did it, there were members in the church, you're not good enough. You're not welcome at our table. Natalie mentioned cliques. They're not in the right group. So you don't really belong. So Paul said, before you take this, you need to check your hearts before you fall into a trap of an empty ritual. You don't want this to mean nothing. So look at yourselves. And his main point was, every person who was going to partake, and in our our fellowship, we believe that every person who is truly a child of God, who is trusted in Christ, is eligible. But he said, whoever's going to take of this body, of this cup, this bread and cup, you need to look at who you are. And the idea of you must examine yourself, it's connected to the word proving. And I can almost hear the rich people. Of course we're approved by God. We're rich. But he's telling them, see if you're really approved. See if you're really who you think you are. And the phrase, in an unworthy manner, some translations treat it like it is. It is, a, it is an adverb. It is not an adjective. So he's not saying you are unworthy, because folks, none of us are worthy. None of us are worthy for what Christ gave. That's why it's called grace. You will never be perfect enough to take the Lord's Supper. Because you will never be perfect. So that's not the focus here. You are taking it unworthily, in an unworthy manner. 
And all he has to do, look at the divisiveness, look at the selfishness, look at the drunkenness. Paul, somebody said Paul was in effect saying, take a look at what you're doing. Do you think your activity is worthy of such a sacred right? Do you really think you're doing this the way God would want? The way that would honor God? And the answer would obviously be no, because they don't care. They're not looking at themselves. So, this is what I need us to see. How we come to the table is of utmost importance. Folks, it's not about your character. It's not, again, about whether or not you are perfect. When I take of this table, every time I take it, I'm reminded that God brings forgiveness to our hearts through what Jesus Christ did. God knows that I fall. God knows that I stumble. So if I'm waiting to be perfect before I can take the Lord's Supper, I will never take it again. Just like if I'm waiting to clean up my life before I can get saved, I'll never get saved. The warning simply is stating, don't come to this table forgetting who gave it to you. And remember what he did. Don't just scarf down a piece of bread and drink some juice. Remember who Jesus is. And he is always present with us. But this meal reminds us very specifically about what he did for us. The warning says, when you're unloving to our fellow church members, if we really don't care about those folks scattered all around, if our only heart and attention is those people we like, we don't understand what this is about. And folks, I get it. Jesus didn't command us to like our neighbor because that's emotional. He called us to love our neighbor and to love each other in the body of Christ. If we forget his sacrifice. And folks, again, Kenneth Chafin says, if we truly enter into the spirit of the supper we will have a heightened sense of our own worthiness of God's grace. And this awareness of God's love for us ought to make it easier for us to love one another. So what does this mean? We need to humbly submit our hearts to the Lord when we come to this table. Not, Lord, am I perfect? But we need to open ourselves up. Lord, help me to be, as I take of this, help me to remember you and what you've done for me. And we celebrate that sacrifice. But we must also genuinely seek to care and love each other. God, don't only help me remember what Christ has done for me. Help me remember what he showed me to be Help me remember what it means to be a loving person in the kingdom of God. So if there's someone that makes me uncomfortable, help me, O Lord, learn what it means to love them. If there's someone who's a different class than I am, help me to love them. If we're a definite ethnicity or nationality, but they are 
followers of Christ, we belong together. We are the body. I promise you there are not going to be any divisions in heaven. There's not going to be one place paneled off for Southern Baptists. I did have a young woman who was deeply criticizing Southern Baptists just because of Southern Baptists, and, and she blurted out, well, my granddaddy, who was a Pentecostal preacher, said, God's got a special place for you Baptists. And I wanted so badly to say, yeah, right next to the throne. But I didn't. We need to love each other. And we need to be committed to each other. And this table reminds me, and unless this table reminds me of this, then I'm not honoring the body of our Lord. And if I despise any member in this congregation, I am out of the will of God, no matter what the reason. If I think they are somehow inferior, this is empty. Now, you may have been wondering all along the way, why have I used Da Vinci's Last Supper as my slide pick? Why would I do that? After all, we know it didn't really look like this. Okay. One, we know that in first century they would recline at a meal and, and so forth, and even if they did have the tables up in Gentile, you know, have you ever been, except in a thing that's supposed to be honoring somebody, have you ever been to a place where you're eating normally, where people are all seated on one side of the table? You don't do that. Now, and, on, and Jesus and the disciples were not European. But I love this painting. I've always loved it for one reason, and now I have a second reason. The first reason, this painting was painted to design the re reaction right after Jesus said, one of you are going to betray me. And they're all saying, is it I? And folks, I don't know a better example or illustration of what it means to examine yourself. Am I the one that's making this a mockery? But my grace pointed out something I had never considered before, and apparently... Others have, so I learned something and tried not to feel too bad about not knowing it. He pointed out there's something special. When you look at this, this setting, what people have noted throughout the centuries, this is an invitation for anyone who is looking to come join the fellowship. A visual representation that there is room for more in this kingdom of God. And I like that. So, at this point, we've looked at the truth here. We can't forget who we are. We are the body of Christ. And each individual member of that body of Christ should care about other people. And Jesus showed us what it costs to become part of the body. And Jesus showed us by his life the way we are to live. And now we come.